Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we will be opening up the Salt and Light Treasure Vault and pulling out some of our favorite conversations from the fall of 2014. We begin by talking apologetics with Chesterton expert Dale Alquist, and we speak with beloved liturgical composer Dan Schutte. In our second half hour, Dr. Peter Kloponis, author of Integrity Restored, helps us to heal from what he calls the pornography epidemic. And we end the program by catching up with singer-songwriter Tony Melendez. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org radio and to comment on what you hear or to ask any questions, look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook and Twitter. We begin now with Roman Catholic Apologetics with Dale Alquist. Now, maybe this never happens to you, but it happens to me all the time, especially during that family Christmas get-together where you get to, you get your once-a-year visit with that relative who is a lapsed Catholic or a professed agnostic. Undoubtedly, they'll say something about Galileo or about the Crusades or about abortion or euthanasia. And what do you do? How do you respond? Wouldn't you want to have some reliable, factual information to counter their weak arguments? What you need is good, solid apologetics. And there are a lot of apologetics resources out there, but I must say none are like Dale Alquist's latest book, All Roads, Roman Catholic Apologetics. This is a great book. And to tell us more and to give us some of those arguments, I am now joined by Mr. Dale Alquist. Dale, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Deacon Pedro, great to be with you. Thank you. So I am, I, can you tell, I am very excited about this book. Um, you're a Chesterton scholar, and I suppose we can talk about who Chesterton is for people who might not know, but why, why are you writing an apologetics book? Well, Chesterton was a great apologist. He was a great defender of the, of the faith, and I suppose from all that reading of Chesterton and being a convert myself and being someone who's gotten into all of these arguments that I talk about in the book, yeah. uh, it, was, it was time to put it all on paper. It, it it's really a combination of my own experiences in defending the faith and just dealing with the classic objections and the classic arguments against the faith. Okay, but you weren't, you didn't set out to write, like, this is just another way to organize Chesterton quotes, apologetics. Because it's very, no, seriously, I, I get the sense that this is very much uh, Dale Alquist. This is very much a book about you. Yeah, this is truly not a book about Chesterton. I just happen to quote him a lot. <laughs> quote him a lot, yeah. He is one of the great thinkers, and I, I do use him as one of my principal resources. But as you know from looking at the book, I also quote the Church Fathers. Mm-hmm. And even when I'm desperate, I quote Scripture. Yeah, Scripture, yeah. Like a good, a good, a good Protestant. You, <laughs> you, why, why, okay, so Chesterton was a convert. So are you. Why was it important for you to begin the book by telling us your conversion story? Well, that's what happens from good apologetics. They, they make people think, and they, they lead them to uh, reconsider their own arguments against the faith. I started out very much as an anti-Catholic, mm-hmm. and I, I had to deal with, with first the intellectual issues before you, you get to the matter of the will, uh, which is how, how it ends. But uh, it's, it's good to have at, at our hand the good intellectual resources to argue the faith using reason and facts. There, there, I think that those of us who are not converts, we kind of take that for granted. 
do you, it's almost like you need to be a convert in order to, to be a good apologist. Well, I, I think converts can be uh, have an advantage in being good apologists, but all Catholics need to be better apologists. They, yes. Catholics do not know how to defend their faith, no. and that's the, that's the problem. That's the problem. Now, um, was Chesterton part of your journey into the Catholic Church? Uh, he was the main part. <laughs> he was the one really who led me to the to the doors of the Church, but I, I certainly read a lot of other things along the way, and the Church Fathers among them. But uh, but Chesterton was the initial spark. He was the main guide, and he was the one who opened the door for me. Okay, because you were already in love with Chesterton before you became a Catholic. Yes, I uh, I was like so many evangelicals. They they are drawn to Chesterton because uh-huh. of his influence on on C.S. Lewis and the yeah. fact that half of his writing took place before his uh, his own conversion. Mm-hmm. Now you've uh, last time you were on the show, and, and this is probably uh, people might know your last book, The Complete Thinker. We were talking about that. I know that you keep saying that Chesterton. One of the, one of the things you like about him is that he's a complete thinker. Um, what else do you love about Chesterton? Well, I think his great joy, Deacon. Uh. His uh, his joy in living and expressing the faith. Uh, he is someone who is countercultural right now. Um, he is the one who is the sign of contradiction to the to the times we live in, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's so refreshing to hear his common sense when we have so much insanity around us. It's true, and he was also a bit of a prophet. Can I say that? <laughs> you can say that. He, that's absolutely accurate. He is someone. He's a prophet in both senses of the word. He he certainly saw what was coming and warned us against it and warned us to repent. But a prophet who speaks really the the divine message that's that's the other thing a prophet is he he really does uh, convey the truth of god himself mm-hmm. now once somebody once told me and it wasn't you although i think you have said this as well that the best place to start with chesterton is actually to not read chesterton but to read dale alquist <laughs> <laughs> oh i hope it wasn't me that said it but i probably did uh, it, it really my my two introductory books are really good for that 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 person who just doesn't know anything about chesterton and can be very intimidated uh, from just picking up a a, a pure Chesterton. Okay, book. so if, I, it, I ease the way in with my. Okay, my so if, so th- that is a good suggestion. So if people want to know more and they're intrigued about this G.K. Chesterton person, go to the Chesterton uh, uh, American Society to the website, and I'll, I'll I'll put that on our site so you'll yeah, know where Chesterton. that is. Yeah, Chesterton.org. Um, yep. So that people can find it and find your books. Now, give me some of these arguments. And I was going through the book, thinking which is which two am I going to pick? And I, I think I want to uh, go with the, with the atheists and the and the agnostics because we all, at some point, and we know people. How do we deal? Give us give us the the, the couple are the pointers. How do we deal with an atheist who's got like the, the standard atheistic comments? One of the things about atheists is that they're. Um they represent about 1% to 2% of the population. They uh-huh. are just a really small minority, indicating that their thinking is not normal. It's, it's not normal to not believe in God. Right. That's, so really, they're the ones who have to defend themselves. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the, next, the next thing you ask an atheist is, well, what, what is it that you do believe? You're, you're just taking a negative approach by saying there is no God. What do you believe? Get them to um, get them on the defensive because they have to believe something. They have to explain how they're here and how uh, how they figure out the meaning of life. Because everyone 
wants meaning in their lives. It's natural to believe there's an ultimate purpose to our existence. Uh-huh. And, and how, do they, how do they deal with a question that big? And then how do they justify, um, you know, really living an enthusiastic life that has no meaning mm-hmm. if, since there is no God? Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so, 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 so come back to them with questions. Yes. Is what you're yes. saying. Uh, uh, you know, we really aren't the ones having to defend ourselves in talking to an atheist. They have to defend themselves. That's right. That's good advice. So, and, and agnostics, y- y- in a way you, you say, and I think Chesterton said this too, that agnostics, they're worse than atheists. It's a they more are worse than atheists. An atheist, to give the atheist credit, is actually someone who's taken a position. Yeah. And has made up their mind about something. And there's there's a, actually some courage in the in the decision they've made because they've made the decision of taking a universally negative position, yeah, exactly. uh, which is you know t- if they think about it, it takes some takes some real courage. But the agnostic is someone with no courage and no convictions. They they refuse to take a position, hmm. and they're constantly backing up. Uh, and all they're saying is I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know because the word agnostic is simply the Greek word. For the ig- for the word ignorant in Latin, mm-hmm. so you know, agnostic sounds like a noble word, but ignorant well, it doesn't sound quite as noble. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> right. So, what are some arguments that an, an agnostic would have, or, or, or statements well, the that they would make? Of course, is, is basically the skeptic. He's he keeps he keeps throwing rocks at the position of someone who uh, who believes something, mm-hmm. but they you have to throw your rocks from an, an actual position that you're standing on. In other words, you have to have some convictions from which to even begin your doubts. Right. Because you can't doubt everything. If you doubt everything, Chesterton says, you essentially are falling through floor after floor of a bottomless universe. Right. You've got nothing to stand on if you doubt everything. So and basically all they're doing is doubting, and you can't even build, you can't build any philosophy that begins with doubt. So how, how do you deal with that then? Do you, well, you, you get you know you do the same thing you do with the yeah. atheists. You say, okay, Asking what questions. is it that you believe? You must believe something, right? Uh, and you you get them to defend themselves. Yeah. And pretty soon they start realizing that they do probably have some convictions and yeah. they do believe something. Right. And, and then, then we we take them from the things they do believe, and we 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 take them all the way to God. It's it's. It's a wonderful process. Right. And in order to do that, it, it means that we need to know our faith. We need to know scripture. We need to understand what the church teaches. We need to know some history. <laughs> That's a lot. Of, we need to go back to school. Um, uh, and it's a pleasure to know these things. That's the other, you know, the, there's two yeah. reasons for studying these things. One's for our own edification and, and the building of our own faith. But, of course, the other is, this is how we defend the faith, is by knowing the faith. Absolutely. And a way that people can learn about all these things is to get the book, All Roads, Roman Catholic Apologetics by Dale Alquist. Dale, you deal with, I mean, atheism and agnosticism, absolutely, but with Islam, Protestantism, materialism, social engineering, environmentalism. I mean, everything is in this book, and it's not it's not like lessons. It's nice little pithy stories and and it's short. You can. It's easy to read. It's a great book. So I encourage everybody to go and get it. Dale, thank you for sh- for writing it, for doing what you do, and for sharing it uh, a little bit of about it with us today. God bless you, Deacon. Thanks a lot for letting me talk about it. All roads go to Chesterton.org to get it. Dale Alquist is the president and co-founder of the American Chesterton Society. He is the author of G.K. Chesterton, Apostle of Common Sense and the recently published The Complete Thinker, a book that we featured on this program. He's also the publisher of the magazine Gilbert 
and the co-founder of the Chesterton Academy. As he said, you can learn more at their website, chesterton.org. Here now is our featured Artist of the Week, Dan Schutte with God With Us from the prayer collection of the same name. When the winter's darkness cast its gloom
That was Dan Schutte with God With Us from his Advent and Christmas prayer book, God With Us. Now, I could give you a whole biography, but maybe I'll just tell you some of the songs he's written. Before the Sun Burn Bright, Behold the Wood, Blessed Be the Lord, City of God, Glory and Praise to Our God, Jesus Christ is Risen Today, Only This I Want, Sing a New Song, Table of Plenty, Though the Mountains May Fall, Valleys of Green, What You Hear in the Dark, You Are Near, and Here I Am, Lord. We've been singing them for over 30 years. Dan Schutte is one of the St. Louis Jesuits, and I'm very excited to welcome, welcome him to the Salt and Light Hour today. Dan Schutte, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here with you. It, it's, it's a great honor, um, and I have so many questions to ask you, but maybe how did, how did this all begin? How did it all begin? Well, it, it began... Um, the music part began in my childhood. Yes. Um, neither my parents were musical, but I had, I had grandparents on both sides of the family that were, and I think I probably got those genes. Uh-huh. So I, I, was, I was a lover of music from very early childhood memories. Mm-hmm. That part of me was, was luckily and gracefully nurtured over the years by the Catholic sisters who taught me in grade school and then by the right. Jesuits in right. high school. Right. Um, the, when I was in college, so right after high school, I entered the, the Jesuit seminary, mm-hmm. and uh, I was blessed to have both peers who loved music and also professors mm-hmm. um, who nurtured that in us. I Many people think that the St. Louis Jesuits that whole venture was something that the five of us sat down and planned one day, and that was not the case at uh-huh. all. We were, we were seminarians, and we played music for Mass, and we were inspired both by our Jesuit Ignatius, Ignatian um, spirituality mm-hmm. to begin writing music from Scripture, which is what we did. And the response of people was so amazing and uh that it encouraged us to keep on doing that. We right. never went. We we never went looking for a publisher. A no. publisher heard about us yeah. through the grapevine and uh, wrote and said, "If you if you guys ever would be interested in having your music published, we'd be happy to talk to you about it." Yeah. No. So it was, it was all along the way, very much uh, a work that God uh, yeah. did in us and through us rather than something that something we planned. set out to do. Yeah. Now, l- let me just uh, back up a little bit. You, uh, th- This was in the late 60s, so the, the, you, yes, when you were writing music, six. when you were writing music at the seminary, you weren't specifically writing music for Mass. Was the new translation, sorry, the new liturgy? Um, well, it was, it, it was... It was around the same you time. You were writing for the the renewal of the liturgy that happened with the Second Vatican okay. Council. So, so, so uh, that those uh-huh. those new English texts were were out and about, and um, so those are the texts that we wrote for mass parts, and then of course using scripture for other hymns uh-huh. and songs. Now, you're a guitar player mainly. Do you play any other instruments? You know, I began with guitar, uh-huh. but I've always loved piano, and over the years, I've I've learned. To do that took lessons at a couple different points. I'm not a terrific pianist by any means, but I can play my own music. And when I do my my 
evenings of music and reflection, I play both piano and guitar and right. sing. Do you do you th- were you influenced very much by the folk music of the sixties? And... Oh, very much. Yes, sure. You, Pe- you know, people like Simon and Garfunkel, uh-huh. Peter Paul and Mary, and the the popular ones of that time, Gordon Lightfoot, were all right. influences on me and my, my fellow Jesuits. Yeah. Now the other St. Louis Jesuits, John Foley, Bob Dufford, Rock O'Connor, and Tim Mannion. What what happened to them? Are they. They're 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 all alive, yes, and and still kicking. Um, <laughs> they they're all involved in various works. Uh, John Foley's at St. Louis University. Rock just Rock O'Connor just got a new assignment at a at a Jesuit parish in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Tim lives with his wife in the Seattle, Washington area. Right. And um, Bob oh, Dufford wow. is at a Jesuit retreat house in Iowa. Nice, nice. So you guys still uh, keep in touch? Uh, we do. We do a bit. Not not a lot. Um, our lives keep us busy doing other things. But it, in 2005, uh, we celebrated mm-hmm. the 30th anniversary yes, of our venture together. And did a new recording for that, yes. and did a bit of, of travel with some some anniversary events. So we've we've been we do maybe one a year. Mm-hmm. Now you uh, you go around, you do workshops. You're still writing music. You're 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 writing books. Um, is that sort of what's keeping you busy most of the time? Yes, yes, it, and it keeps me very busy. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm actually right in, in the process of working on a book, which would be sort of the the, the counterpart to the Advent Christmas book. Uh-huh. I'm doing a new one for Lent and Easter season. Oh, good. And we can talk about that. So it would be yeah. just, it would be exactly the same format as the God with Us book. Okay, so let, let's talk about that. And so I have this book in my hand. It's a prayer book for Advent and Christmas, and it has. Uh, I guess a little reflection and songs to go with it, re- this reflection. How do you hope that people can use this book? Well, I, you know, I wrote the book for those people who sit in the pews on Sundays. Many of them don't have an opportunity to go on a on a retreat, you know, to leave their mm-hmm. families and so forth. Um, they're much too busy for that. So I wanted to offer a prayer book for the person in the pew who wanted to give a little bit more prayer time to Advent and Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wonderful time of year, and so, I, and I, I also know that many of them are helped by having music to pray with. Yes. Sometimes, you know, we can't always find that place of prayer within ourselves without some help, so the the songs and the music I found helped many people to enter into that prayerful place. Yeah. So it's a wonderful marriage of the music with reflections and scripture and so forth. And and the photographs as well. Um, yes. Are, are also an, I guess for some people an entry an entryway into into that deeper prayer experience. Right. Um, it's all about capturing people's imagination and. The song does that in one way, mm-hmm. the scripture does it in another way, and the photographs hopefully do it in another way to people who are, are more visual. I'm, I'm a very visual person are and, you? and yeah. do graphic arts in addition to the music piece. Right. So having beautiful photographs like that helped me to enter into that 
place of prayer. Yeah. Now, one of the things I like about the book, because when I first saw it, I thought, oh, great, something I can do, a little reflection for every day of Advent. And of course, there isn't one for every day of Advent. There are 12 reflections. Um, And even though, I I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but could I say that sort of the first couple ones are more Advent and the later ones are more Christmas? Because I find that any of them could work for both sometimes. Right. Almost the first half. I think I think there's a place where it becomes, all of a sudden you notice it becomes obviously Christmas and about the Christmas story. Yes. The, the scripture reading kind of takes you to that place. Right. So that the piece, the reflections before that would be Advent season and, and after that would be Christmas. Mm-hmm. Good. So it's a great uh, a resource, I guess. I hate to call books like these resources. Sounds so academic, but it's a great companion to uh, to to our Advent and Christmas journeys as we pray. Whether whether you want to spend some time just before Mass reading it, or while you're driving with the CD, or I guess in your quiet prayer time at night or in the morning at home, it's. Uh, yeah. I, I think a lot of people yeah. a lot of people find that they need uh, direction direction in their prayer. Um, That's exactly what I intended. And one of the reasons why I didn't write a reflection for every day is that I know not everybody finds the time every day Mm -hmm. to set aside for a long reflection. The other piece comes from my Ignatian spirituality, where Ignatius, in his spiritual exercises, um, invites a person to stay with a particular prayer or reflection as long as it gives grace and blessing. Yes. And only then do you move on. So I didn't want to fill the book with too many pieces. Yes. I wanted people to spend time on each one of them. Yeah, no, and that's what's beautiful about this, that you might do, you know, ref- the third one one day, and then two weeks later you might come back to the third one. Um, yes, exactly. It, it's beautiful. And it is a beautiful little book, and... and uh, so I encourage all, all our listeners to go look it up. God with us, a prayer book for Advent and Christmas, with a companion music CD by Dan Schutte. Dan, it's been a great pleasure. I wish we had more time, and and maybe now is an opportunity to that we've spoken. Maybe bring you back when the Lenten version is out, and we can talk about Lent. Um, thank you for. Sure, I would love to. Thank you for the honor of being with you. Yes, I think I can speak on behalf of all our listeners. Uh, thank you for all the work you've done for the church. You're very welcome. You can learn more about Dan Schutte, find out how to bring him to your parish for one of his workshops at his website, danschutte.com. All his songs and books are published by Oregon Catholic Press. You can learn more at ocp.org. Here now is Dan Schutte with an Advent song that I'm sure uh, most of you will recognize, Let the Valleys Be Raised, from God With Us. Let the valleys be raised and the mountains made low, every meadow and field overturn. Make the pathway straight and the highway run smooth for the coming of God in our day. You're listening to Dan Schutte with Let the Valleys Be Raised from his Advent and Christmas book and CD, God With Us. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio.
Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Did you know that there are 40 million adults in the United States who regularly visit pornographic websites? 47% of Christians claim that pornography is a major problem in their home. Every second, over $3,000 are spent on pornography. That's over $97 billion worldwide every year. $13 billion comes from the United States. Did you know that child porn generates $3 billion each year? Pornography plays a significant role in 56% of divorces. There are 4.2 million pornography websites on the internet and every second 25,258 internet users are viewing pornography. Every 39 minutes a new pornographic video is being produced in the United States. There are also 100,000 child porn websites worldwide. Now some may not think that this is a problem but my next guest calls pornography an epidemic. And to tell us why and to tell us how we can heal, I am now joined by Dr. Peter Kloponis, author of Integrity Restored, Helping Catholic Families Win the Battle Against Pornography. Dr. Pete Kloponis, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So how would you define pornography? Pornography is any image that leads a person to use another person for their own sexual pleasure. It's devoid of love, intimacy, and relationship, and it's very addictive. So the key word there being the word use. Use, correct, yes. Now, you know, when, a man, when a man's looking at pornography, he's looking at that woman, he's not thinking that that's a person with thoughts and feelings and so forth. All he knows is that she's there for his sexual pleasure, and he's going to use her. Okay, so it's not just images of naked people, No, per it could se. be anything, anything, yeah. Anything as long as that image is being used... Unquote, used for sexual gratification. Correct, yes. Now, would the Catholic Church def- define pornography the same way or slightly different or add anything to that definition? Well, the, the Catholic Church has, has a very wonderful definition of it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and it is, is very comprehensive with it. But, you know, it, it does talk about how it just um, violates the dignity. Right of the conjugal act, you know, where it's just reducing people to base pleasure. Right. right? To me, that's simply using people for your own sexual pleasure. Okay, so for the people who would say, well, what's the problem with that? Why is it wrong? What are are the effects of pornography? Well, I mean, the the, the effects of pornography are numerous. You know, first first of all, as you you said, you know, you you just read off some statistics Mm -hmm. in there. Uh, it's ruining individual lives, it's ruining marriages, families, careers, and so forth from all that. Uh, and, you know, and on the, on the more basic human level, it objectifies people. So, right. so if I'm a user of pornography and, and I've uh, created this idea that people can be used as objects, then that is going to directly impact how I relate to, real, to people in real life? That's what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Exactly. It's going to change how you relate to people. It's going to change how you um, uh, view people. It's going to change your your view of beauty, uh-huh. what true beauty is. You know, uh, you know uh, the women you see in pornography, thanks to all the plastic surgery, makeups, and digital enhancements, they're not real. They're not real, yeah. They don't exist. Okay. But this is what it really trains men's minds to view that as what beauty is. Right. And then you look at a real woman who's not a size zero, she's around a size 12, mm-hmm. and he 
to be able to appreciate the true beauty of a real woman. So is it possible for someone to say, well, I suppose it's possible for them to say, but is it true that, oh, no, I, 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 I can compartmentalize that's just those women, but I will not treat my wife this way? Uh, in the beginning, they say that, but after a while, the lines get blurred, and it's very difficult, very difficult to, to keep that distinction. Uh, and what's happened, a lot of men have found themselves unable to perform sexually with their wives simply because they've conditioned themselves to only become aroused to the women in pornography. Hmm. So in, in your practice, you see very commonly how pornography is uh, damaging marriages. It is. It's, it's devastating what it does. You know? It's adultery. It's as serious as an extramarital yeah. affair. Yes. See, for men, it may just seem like images on a computer screen, but for women, those aren't images. Those are other people. Right, right. And for, for, for someone who's not married, how, how, I suppose because they've trained themselves to have this idea of women either as objects or as fantasies, then that will impact any future relationships that they will have. Oh, exactly. In fact, there have been several studies that have been done that have shown that college-age men who are regular users of pornography... Uh, don't want to get married. Hmm. They believe that true happiness and fulfillment in life is going to come from sexual encounters with multiple women and not by making one commitment to one woman. Interesting. So it's really changing the way people view fulfillment in life. And we know that, you know, going from sexual partner to sexual partner, although it may be exciting in the moment, in the long run, does not fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. Right. Now, I've heard people say, and I, I think you refer to it as well, as, as an addiction. What, how is it similar to other uh, substance abuse, per se? Okay. Well, again, you know, we, we, we look at, you know, why is it being used? Initially, people get into pornography out of curiosity. You know, they view it as simply a dull entertainment, but really deep down inside, they're using it to deal with a lot of negative emotions, mm-hmm. stress, anxiety, depression, and so forth. All right? They're self-medicating. Right. They may not believe it or want to think it, but that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Second of all, as with other addictions, after a while, a tolerance develops. Right. A little isn't enough. You need more of the drug to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. So soon that soft porn doesn't work anymore. You get into more hardcore, more deviant forms of porn, violent forms of pornography right. in order to get the same effect. And the amount of time you spend pursuing pornography increases. Instead of 20 minutes once a week, it could be an hour or two a day. Mm-hmm. So there's a tolerance. Thirdly, there's a dependence that develops. Now, the brain has become so accustomed to operating at such a high level of chemical stimulation that it needs to maintain that just to be able to function in daily life, mm-hmm. right? So where do we see this? Well, you know, you have the man who goes online, he views pornography afterward, he feels horrible about it, and he says to himself, I will never do it again. Mm-hmm. And what happens? The next day he's back at it again. Right. Right? There's a dependence on it. He needs that fix for right. it. And ultimately, it leads to a life that is out of control because it gets to the point that no matter how hard he tries, he cannot stop. Mm-hmm. Cannot stop. Yeah. Now I've heard that that it, because of the way men's brains are wired to to be visually stimulated by sexuality, um, yeah. addiction is more of a, a problem for men. But you say in the book, and you have a whole chapter dedicated to how it affects women, and not the yeah. women who are victims of pornography in the pornography, but how women can be also become addicted. Exactly. You know, we men we're, we're wired to be visually stimulated. You know, we see a beautiful girl walk by, we look. It's automatic. That's the way our our brains work. Yeah. 
women are not wired to be visually stimulated. You know, yes, they, they like to see a good-looking man, but they don't usually get into porn. Mm-hmm. Women are relationally stimulated. Right. That's what gets the brain chemistry going for them. This is why women love romance novels and chick flicks, and, of course, you've probably heard of the Fifty Shades of Grey books yes. and now the movie coming out and so forth. It's relationship mm-hmm. that draws them in, okay? And so, you know, when you eroticize it, right, that's what gets the brain chemistry going and really, you know, gets them addicted. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and you look at it, you know, I, I, I tell people that, you know, yeah, you know, men like to look at beautiful women. You know, that's like running your car engine on gasoline. But when it's pornography, it's like running your car engine on rocket fuel. Right. Right. It's fun and exciting, but pretty soon you're going to get burned out. Uh-huh. The same thing for women. Women love romance stories. All right. That's natural. But when you take that romance and you eroticize it, you make it pornified, pornographic. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like going from running the engine on gasoline to rocket fuel. Right. It's too much. Right. And a woman might be doing it for the same reasons that the man might be doing it to, to deal exactly. with other other emotional vacuums that they might have. Now, in the little time exactly. that we have left, mm-hmm. um, and you dedicate a whole a whole half of the book to, to the hope. There is hope. How do we heal? How do we heal individually and as a society? Well, individually, uh, it starts by education knowing the facts about the truth about pornography. And if you are struggling with it or know someone who's struggling, get help. Mm-hmm. You know, look around in your community. Find the people who are trained to deal with this, this type of issue. You can go to my website, integritystored.com and learn more about it. Right? As a society, yes, it's going really in the long run, it's going to take education. Right. Uh, pornography is not going away. I, I compare this to tobacco use 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, Fifty years ago, doctors knew tobacco would kill you. They knew that smoking would give you cancer and lung disease and all kinds of problems, but nobody could say anything about it. It right. was politically incorrect. It was everybody's right to smoke, and we were smoking everywhere, in office buildings and airplanes and restaurants and so forth. It took over 50 years of intensive education, and unfortunately many people dying along the way yes. before we as a culture got the message. And now everywhere you go, it's smoke-free. Now, cigarettes will always be around. They're not going away. But we've changed our culture's attitude towards smoking. And because mm-hmm. of this, you have millions of people who are quitting smoking and many who are just not even starting to begin with, which yes. is good. We need to do the same with pornography, and it's going to require a lot of education. Well, Dr. We ch- Sorry, I was going to say thank you for doing your part in helping us get the message. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Peter Kloponis is a clinical therapist and has over 18 years of professional experience working with individuals, couples, families, and organizations. He is also a popular speaker and conference director. His latest book, Integrity Restored, Helping Catholic Families Win the Battle Against Pornography, is published by Emmaus Road, and you can learn more at his website, integritystored.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Tony Melendez, with Never Be the Same, from his album of the same name. Day is like no other day before 
you and I will never be the same. I give you all my love this day and every day, forever and forever in our joys and in our pain. We become the sign of love our God has given us. We become the witness to We fill the day with love Today is like no other day before Even more You and I will never be the same Spend my days with you and with the one who gave us life, and shared his love by opening his hands. Now, with open arms, I offer you my life in mystical surrender to thy love. Our God, we are become as one. In Him we will bring light into the dark. We fill the day with love. Today is like no other day before. Even more, you and I will never. That was our featured artist of the week, Tony Melendez, with Never Be the Same from his album of the same name. Tony Melendez was born in Nicaragua, son of a woman who was given the drug thalidomide to help calm morning sickness, but caused him to be born without arms. His family then moved to the United States where Tony grew up. Tony never saw himself as being different or disabled and never let his lack of arms get in the way of anything. There's very little he cannot do. And I spoke with Tony earlier this week. Tony, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. It's an honor to be with you. I'm excited. I Salt and Light again, being with you guys, is to me, exciting. It's, it's good to have you back. Last time I saw you, we were in Brazil. So, and I know you, you're, you're, you're one of these World Youth Day pioneers. You've been to a lot of them, if not all of them. How, how was Brazil for you as World Youth Day? Uh, to me, it was exciting, uh, especially to see the new Pope, you know, um, just to kind of meet him a little more so. Um, I didn't get to, like, be up close and talk to him personally, but just to, you know, be closer to him, you know, there amongst the whole World Youth Day and uh, just to see how he just 
says to his people, okay, I want to walk. Um, yeah. And how he wants to be with the uh, with the youth, especially during that time. And just to see so many people gather, you know, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Now you're no stranger to, to popes. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> play I'm gonna play something for you. Tony, you are you are truly a courageous young man. Courageous young man. You are giving hope to all of us. And my wish to you is to continue of giving this hope to all all the people. Amen. Amen. I'm sure you've heard that that clip thousands of times, and I'm sure every time you hear it, it, it probably sends shivers up your... How do you feel when you hear that 27 years later? Uh, you know, you know I, that moment changed my life uh, you know, in, in, like, seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, without without uh, Tony Melendez even realizing the impact, you know that was 1987. Mm-hmm. Here we are, 2014 now, yeah. um, and that message of hope, those words that he uh, said to me, um, that kiss that was seen around the world, yeah, um, it, it, it has followed me. It has helped me. It, it is it is challenged my faith um, in the sense of wanting to do more um it's been even uh, i'll even say almost scary because i you know i i don't feel like i could carry that kind of load you know right to be a hope giver to to the level of some people um what they're demanding or what they really need yeah uh and you know i really wish that you know i could put jesus straight in their heart and say Here's the love you're looking for, you know. And I tried through song, I tried through words, I tried through, um, you know, sharing some of the scriptures. Uh, but that impact of that day was so strong um, that you know it, it, it's a mix. It's a mix of, of feelings. It's a mix of being thrown here. You do it. You're not going to be alone. Uh, God put me in places where um, I don't know exactly what to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep singing. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of the best way I, I, I say it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and getting, to meet, uh, getting to say that I um, was kissed by a saint, Yes. Um, I felt even dishonored. I mean, there's just no other word. Yes. Uh, yes. I knew him, per- I, I knew him uh, not personally, from the moment uh, that, that it's changed my life. Yeah. Now, that was almost 30 years ago. At the time, did you think that you were going to be a, a, a musician, that that was going to be your career? Um, I, was sing- I was singing during that time. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess it was a dream of mine. You know, every singer kind of dreams one day, maybe it takes off. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say it, it's taken off in a big way. Um, and it hasn't kept me just in the church realm. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've gone into corporate settings with the motivational speaking and a, and a gift of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's put me in secular situations or concerts or gatherings that, you know, it gives me just that little moment to maybe plant a seed. Right. Uh, of how, how love and, and how big Christ really is. I yeah. mean, it, to me, it's a, Sometimes there's just no words, you know. I'm just grateful mm-hmm. 
and uh, I'm able to, you know, God could use a guy with no arms. Use that moment. That's probably the best way to say it. Yeah. How do you how do you manage those? If I can call it, I guess, secular situations. Do you really? Because my sense is that what you do is ministry. So do you feel that you're not just giving a message of hope, but it's a very specific thing that our hope is in Jesus Christ? And how do you bridge that gap for people who are not Christian or when it's not a religious event? Just do goodness. Uh-huh. Some people really just have a goodness about them. That, you know, maybe they don't go to church, maybe they don't, you know, share their faith, but there's a genuine goodness and um, that I sense or feel or um, almost could see that is real. And, you know, to me, that's, that's only the presence of Christ. And, you know, maybe in some situations, some church, some churchgoers, think they're so holy that they forget to be real mm. and you know they they need to you know kind of uh walk the talk you know really just live the way they're talking you know they mm-hmm. they can't just say it they got to live it right and you know some people are hard workers and like i said just have a genuine goodness about them and that that's where i really see the the christ in the person yeah how much of what you do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that in the last couple of years, you've been doing a lot more touring, less recording, that what you do requires you to be present in person, that this is, you know, it's like Tony goes around and he meets people in person. It's not about listening, just listening to your music in my CD player or my MP3 player. Right. You know, I'm, I've never been a, a chart-hitting Catholic <laughs> celebrity or, yeah. you know, the, who really has a Catholic number one hit? I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, there might be a handful of people that, that do it, you know, and, and, you know, to the point where you recognize their music. Yeah. Um, but my my real call, I would say the real call, it's been through music, yes, uh, but it's been more the live concert or the, the live youth rally or yes. uh, the World Youth Day I've been to. Um, I can't even begin to tell you the countless uh, schools I've been to, yes. you know, from Catholic schools to private schools to Protestant schools. I mean, a mix, a mix of religions, but just young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the uh, you know, like, again, I, I'm not a record charting, nothing. You know, the, the closest I came to, be, to even feeling like, oh, uh, I you know, I got maybe close to a number one hit is, invited me to be the, at the Latin Billboard Awards. Oh, yeah. Um, the the year that the Pope died, you know, yeah. 2005. Yeah. And uh, they they wanted me to dedicate a moment. Uh, and some of the top Latino singers were there, you know, just to name a few um, for maybe some of your audience that, that knows it and speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, there was Alia, Daddy Janky, Juanes, Jennifer uh-huh. uh, Lopez, Mar- Mark Anthony. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the top of 2005 were there. Yes. And I was asked to sing uh, a song dedicated to Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And I was in the studio at the time recording, and I stopped everything, and I wrote a song with the, the producer and the, the sound engineer. Between the three of us, we wrote a song called Juan Pablo Grande, John Paul the Great. Uh-huh. And, you know, I would say that was probably Tony Melendez's biggest 
hit, but you know, it never made it to number one or yeah. anything like that. But I, I could say I sang at the billboards. <laughs> yeah, you did. Wow. Okay, Tony, we're going to leave it there, but keep doing what you're doing. You are doing exactly what St. John Paul II uh, said you do, and, and so I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so keep at it. Okay. That was a conversation I had with Tony Melendez earlier this week. Here now is Tony Melendez with Take My Hand from his album, Take My Hand. listening to Tony Melendez with Take My Hand from his album of the same name. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. If you want to watch this interview with Tony Melendez, visit us at saltandlighttv.org slash catholicfocus. Remember to visit our radio website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio. But any comments, feedback, or questions, you can send them to me via Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Perry. Just won't take his hand